0: Section 15 of Paved with Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Judy Mason Paved with Gold by Augustus Mayhew Chapter 5 of Book the Second. Childhood in the Streets a night on town when all london is at rest when bedroom blinds are drawn down and street doors locked and chained when lights are rarely seen but in the windows of the sick wards of hospitals which seem the only places where any are awake then the haymarket is in its glory gay lively as a ballroom with the gaudily dressed multitudes sauntering along its broad pavements crowding them as on an illumination night the gas is flaring from the shop windows and throwing out its brilliant rays until the entire street is lit up as a stage the dissolute and the idle are pouring down to this great playground of folly like moths attracted by the glare that must sooner or later destroy them on they come some in silks and satins dressed out for the fete and others with the money in their pockets that is to pay for the banqueting and revelry the cabs that rattle down regent street have all been told to stop at the corner of the haymarket men that have taken their fill of wine at the dinner-table have come thither to finish up the night and drink on without thirst Liquor that but a few hours since they would have sickened at, youths yet surfeited with their last meal enter as a matter of course into supper-rooms and without feeling the least hunger still eat for the viands they would have refused at home are here flavoured and rendered palatable by debauchery and the next day they can boast about their doings. Officers with heavy moustaches have come up from the garrison towns travelling many a mile on purpose to enjoy this one night on town bearded foreigners who have heard of these midnight revels are strolling about smoking their white cigarettes and gesticulating violently as they criticise the vice of england and denounce the scene they have nevertheless determined on visiting every night during their stay in the metropolis husbands are there too who when they reach home will pass off their insobriety as exhaustion as they tell their wives how business detained them at chambers and brothers loiter about caring little for the hour though sisters are waiting up for them to open the street door silently so that the strict father sleeping above may know nothing of their son's excesses groups of men and women block up the pavement laughing and joking roughly together every corner has its little assembly of gossips who presently go off in couples to the nearest oyster-shop or public-house this same haymarket is the great republic of vice where all who enter are hail-fellow-well-met for every one knows why the other has come there and virtue being cast off for the time all rank and station cease outside the tavern doors are gathered clusters of gentlemen of the land talking to the poor souls who disguised by some magazine de mode have hidden the servant-maid under the toilet of the lady the heir to a title stands bowing to some pretty-faced girl who mixes up her bad grammar with oaths the public-house door swings back to let pass the hope of a family who is about to sip gin at the counter with the chip bonnet at his side seated at a supper table is a pink-faced boy fresh from his country home helping with delicate attention the rouged-up form beside him she laughs noisily as a man flinging her arms about and as the champagne foams in her glass she tosses her head like a bacchanal but what by daylight would disgust seems charming in the blaze of the haymarket gas and the lad looks with admiration upon the companion whom on the morrow he would pass without even a nod of recognition every street in the vicinity of this haymarket partakes more or less of its debauched character in some there are mysterious closed-up houses into the back parlours of which none may enter but the initiated there to empty tumblers of such drink that in a wiser hour they would push from them as unfit even to allay the pain of thirst seated on soft cushioned sofas that are as yielding as they poor simpletons have been are women decked out like shop-windows clothed in the rich gloom of velvet or the brilliance of satin with costly laces richly worked as a gothic tracery such as few virtuous women could afford filigreeing about their arms and necks but how little of the woman do these foolish maidens retain beyond the clothes they wear they are bolder and wilder than the men who have come there to court them they answer gentle speeches with the slang of a cab-driver and even in their merriment they jerk out oaths with their laughter and this is called seeing life. Yes, it may be so, but it is such life as that which exists in the drop of putrid water, the life of the ditch and sewer. They say there is no rest for the wicked, and certainly there is none for the haymarket. It is the owl of London that wakes up at dusk, lively and fresh for the night, and hoots and screeches till morning comes again those who dwell and trade in this thoroughfare have pale faces countenances blanched from the lack of sunlight that in the day look used and seedy as a masquerade dress but at night are fevered up into seeming health when the warmth of the gas strikes upon the cheek they sleep away the morn with closed shutters and drawn curtains and the healthful breezes of the sun-warmed day never blow against their sickly skin they seek for health from the doctor and for cheerfulness from the wine-bottle and when after a few years they have heaped together the round sums they so longed for the body that was to have enjoyed them is withered and rotten and they envy the hunger of the beggar and the strength of the ploughman each member of the associated beggar boys was as well versed in the haymarket as the district postman himself and knew the different shops and names of the proprietors as thoroughly as if he had learnt them off from the london directory the lads had also studied with much attention waterloo place and had even managed to pick up an acquaintance with some of the gentlemen who lounged about there smoking their cigars the magnificent pavement of this latter thoroughfare and its half desertion afforded the school many excellent opportunities for tumbling an exercise which was utterly impossible in the crowded haymarket from the fact of most persons objecting to have either their face slapped by the cold muddy foot of the young caden wheeler or to be tripped up by the rolling human bundle coming head over heels against their unsuspecting legs it's not a bit o' good a gettin to get into the haymarket afore nine the duck would say there's only the swells a goin to the opera and they're too clean to laugh just wait till they've crumbled their whiskets a bit and then they unbends themselves more to a chap the haymarket considered as a street may be said to have two natures one moral and the other immoral for on one side of the roadway the shops give every indication of being virtuous, well-behaved dwellings for they work at their trades during the day and put up their shutters at dusk as if they had closed their eyelids to prepare for sleep. Of these two sides, our young band invariably chose the immoral one as the scene of their night exploits. They cared little about promenading before the closed windows of upright trunk-makers, chemists, and print-publishers they liked the glare of the gas as much as a cat likes the warmth of the fire and it was before the full blaze of oyster shops supper rooms and taverns that these lads carried on their professional labours until the busy time of evening arrived the boys would loiter about windmill street watching the crowd flock to the casino hoping that good luck might throw them a penny for opening some cab door and putting their ragged coat tails against the muddy wheels to protect the dresses of those alighting they stood looking down the narrow street gazing listlessly at the red and blue lamps placed like illuminated posters over the supper-room doors until any vehicle drove up when all of them would dart forward in a body more as if they were going to attack and rifle the cab than act as rugged lackeys to vary the monotony of door-opening the young gentlemen would sometimes amuse themselves by peeping over the red silk curtains of the cafe de la regence at the corner either making faces at the coffee-drinkers within or flattening their noses against the plate-glass until they were as white as button mushrooms much to the horror of the lady with the accroche flourished upon her cheeks who was seated in state behind the comptoir determined not to lose a chance for legitimate begging the boys carried paper with them to accommodate gentlemen whose cigars had gone out and if any such luckless person chanced to approach instantly the spills were lighted at the convenient jets at the cafe door and thrust up to the smoker's countenance more as though they were about to singe him like a chicken rather than tender a civility so as not to interfere with each other in their begging expeditions the gang would separate and whilst some crossed the road to that side of piccadilly which is a medley of hotels bedding-rooms and restaurants to act as self-appointed door openers to the crowds entering the tavern known as the noted house for the brighton tipper others would make for the opera colonnade to fascinate the french gentlemen with their bounding exercises whilst the remainder of the gang prowled about generally either energetically sweeping the flagstones before some well-dressed idler or officiously dusting the boots or scraping off the splashes from the trousers of the first person who happened to be standing still in fact they elected themselves to numerous offices all of a more or less useless character and in the greater number of instances it would have been more agreeable to the favored individual if they had not shown him such delicate attentions the boys had very knowingly arranged a number of plaintive requests that were peculiarly suitable to the occasion it was the invariable custom of the duck when he chanced to be outside a tavern door to ask gigglingly for half a pint of beer to drink his honour's health if whilst mike was gazing in at a baker's window admiring the pale red tarts or longing for the hard-crusted scotch buns so temptingly slashed with the snuff-coloured preserve if we say he caught the eye of any passer-by he would instantly hint that he was on the point of starvation and beg a penny to buy a poor orphan boy a muscle of bread with that genius which usually characterized all his actions king teddy flight had framed a petition intended to move the hearts of those frequenting tobacconists' shops for he would ask them in his most winning tones to stand a farden's worth of snuff to a poor boy out of work but perhaps the most impudent of all these requests was the one that phil had adopted for whatever the time of year might be, whether Christmas or midsummer, he always tendered an oyster shell to anyone he met, begging with an innocent face that they would please to remember the grotto, adding, although it was a nightly request, that it only came once a year. A favorite rendezvous for the tattered rips was in Coventry Street in front of the fish shop where the barrel-shaped lamps hang from the first-floor balcony they delighted to watch the row of aproned men who passed the evening of their lives opening oysters to attract attention king flight was in the habit of requesting any customer who might be sipping his bivalves to chuck him one a demand which was seldom responded to these impertinent urchins were also fond of criticising the feasters and their mode of eating making rude observations which caused many of the customers to feel very uncomfortable and nervous he don't take no vinegar with his'n. mike would remark or phil would cry out look at that chap he swallows em like soup or if anybody happened to drop one of the slippery luxuries the whole school would roar out as the glossy dainty slid along the sawdust until it was covered as with breadcrumbs you've dropped one master give it us phil used to like gazing at these fish shops with the window dressed out with fresh green salads and crimson lobsters until it was as gay as a bed of geraniums he delighted in touching the quires of dried haddock that looked stiff as untanned leather and he wondered why the lobsters should always have the end of their cactus-looking claws bound round with string as if they had been clumsily repaired like the leg of a table the big crabs buff as hard-baked pies and some of them lying on their backs and showing their hairy legs parted down the middle were especial favourites of his and so were the brick-red crayfish with their nutmeg-grater backs and their feelers sticking out like riding-whips and so strong was the boy's curiosity concerning this lobster's big brother that nothing but the presence of the men in the shop prevented him from taking one out of the window for the mere pleasure of opening its springy tail that was always tucked under like that of a frightened dog by eleven o'clock every shop in the haymarket is in full swing of custom and as you look down the street towards charing cross every house seems to have been decorated with lanterns like boots at a fair even the long line of cabs that stretches the entire length of the place is dotted with lamps for they are most of them hansoms and have a bright speck of light fixed in front of the hood a noise fills the air sufficient you would think to rouse all london for besides the shouting organs are playing by the curbstone and bands are serenading outside public-house doors the artiste on the coronet exerting himself till his face looks all cheeks like a prize pig's boys dressed up as highlanders strut along making their bagpipes scream out like railway whistles the favourite jerky airs of scotland drowning for a time the voices of the children bawling out my marianne and bobbing around in the gutter at the french restaurants suppers are being dressed with great vigour as may be seen by a peep down the area railings where men in white jackets with caps flat as plates on their head are discovered handing about little copper saucepans or stirring steaming mixtures which at first glance look like linseed poultices public-houses are so full that many who would enter come back again after peeping in at the swing doors for they find the bars four deep with drinkers who are shouting out their orders to the girl behind the bar and making her work at the groaning beer engines with the energy of a sailor pumping at a sinking vessel the cabmen have all left their vehicles to add to the mob on the pavement and they form groups about the horse-pails belonging to the stand either joking with the passers-by many of whom they are acquainted with or sparring innocently in the road giving each other playful blows and cuffs that would be sufficient to destroy the equilibrium of an ox everybody from the man carrying as many bouquets in each hand as a bucklesbury waiter does plates to the little girl who begs for her mother who is waiting round the corner seems to look upon the proceedings of the evening as a kind of scramble in which so much money is to be recklessly thrown away and those that fight and push the hardest will get the larger share after all the oyster and supper rooms are the striking features of this peculiar place shop fronts are taken out that the stock of chops and steaks and plates of puce-coloured kidneys may tempt the hungry to spend their half-crowns in the establishment every device has been thought of for displaying with advantage the fish within semi-circles of crabs lie on their backs with lemons between their black-tipped claws as if they were going to toss them in the air a la risley at one house mounds of hook-backed prawns are piled up in pyramids like pink basket-work at another wells have been sunk in the marble slab to receive the oysters that are placed one over the other like scale armour or some of the open bivalves are spread out on a big dish with a glitter under the gas-jets like part of a washed-out peacock's tail lower down nearer the opera the supper-room proprietors have endeavoured to add the sale of opera tickets to that of fish and admissions to the pit at eight shillings sixpence stand side by side with pickled salmon at one shilling per pound and cases of opera-glasses are fancifully surrounded by borders of lobsters there are mysterious supper-rooms too such as at the blue posts and the Cafe de paris where no display at all has been attempted to entice custom brahms with lighted lamps drive up and rustling forms dart across the pavement and into the doorways divans too are plentiful enough and the ottoman the turkish and algerine vie with one another for the superiority of trade but the turkish seems to have won the day it has in the window a chalky picture of a plain-looking lady of the harem reclining at full length on a divan it has lithographs of the french troops winning the battles of the alma and Inkerman, and arranged all about are spangle ornamented pouches and amber mouthpieces and pipes as long as fishing-rods sometimes the parisian turk who is making his fortune at this house exhibits himself for a time in his rich oriental costume at the swing-doors of his divan and having played with his long moustache to allow his jewelled fingers to sparkle by the lamps a bit goes back again to collect the sixpences owing for his mocha when the london season is on and the opera open then as the night advances the haymarket becomes choked up with carriages ordered to fetch at eleven the red white and blue cashmere cloaks that have been flirting and chatting out the evening thoroughly indifferent as to whether amina should fall off that terrible nine-inch plank or not or the roguish rosina ultimately marry her tenor lover now the street gains additional importance and profit the night brahms the lofty chariot the genteel fly all crowd together hiding from view the centre line of vulgar calves as completely as a spaniel in the tall grass the footmen take their ease at their public-house until the howl of the link boy shall summon them to duty the powdered retainer from belgrave square graciously drinks from the full pot that the greasy-hatted attendant from barnesbury park islington has admiringly offered him for the humanising effects of porter soften his proud aristocratic soul the silk-stockinged coachman lolls on his hammer-cloth as on a couch chatting condescendingly with the check-trousered fly-driver who is paid for the hot gin and water by and by the mob of drab-coated servitors advance to the colonnade some to stand inside the grand entrance which commands a view of stairs covered with crimson drugget while others to kill the time and get rid of the smell of tobacco air themselves by hanging about the stage door in the hope of catching a glance at some mademoiselle Petito or captivating with a love at first sight those delights of the ballet, mesdames Tootsie and Pootsie. Presently, gentlemen looking unnaturally fashionable emerge from the eight-and-sixpenny entrance, all humming the grand finale as they pack up their binocular glasses. Then, the footmen, knowing that the opera is over, become agitated in a few moments mighty names are shouted out by husky voiced men and my lord's carriage comes swinging to the curbstone and my lady's brougham darts up as if it were trying to smash itself against the columns now the street loungers form a double row like a human palisade to see the company come out ladies with carefully dressed hair skip across the pavement holding up their dresses as on a rainy day and jump into little bandbox vehicles which they fill like a chair steps are clattered down and old gentlemen with pink heads are hoisted up by straining lackeys now slowly advances the big clarence from the livery stable the gaunt horse shrinking from the pressure of the collar despite the whip that whistles like a breeze about his big hips those who have hired the vehicle plunge head first into its drab interior and the crowd, startled at the number, count them with increasing amazement as yet another dress bounds past. Nobody could have enjoyed the opera nights with a greater gusto than did Phil and his companions. Had they been consulted on the subject of the lyric drama, they would have expressed themselves in terms of unqualified approbation upon the great good it effected, for they not unfrequently picked up more money in the half hour after the performance was over than they had made by the entire day's hard begging and tumbling their peculiar business was either to run for cabs or else to open the doors of such as had been fetched the boys politely to avoid disputes with the police always tendered their services to those ladies and gentlemen who in their hurry to get home had wandered a short distance from the theatre, and were helplessly staring about them in hope of hailing a stray vehicle. On these occasions all the boys separated that none might interfere with another's scramble. One very wet night, when the rain had been falling all day long, and had converted the streets to level plains of liquid slush under which the lamps were reflected as into a canal, Phil, who had only made tuppence, and that was for turning a mad cat out of a single lady's coal cellar, trotted down to the opera house, offering up supplications to luck that he might earn the threepenny necessary for a night's lodging at Mrs. O'Donovan's. Just as the music-loving public were rising from their intellectual feast, the rain came down in streams of water as if the clouds above were being wrung like wet blankets here's a soaker thought the young bohemian looking about him with delight as he paddled ankle-deep in the mud they'll be drowned as safe as caught fleas if they tries to swim home in their opera kicksies. presently a gentleman carrying milk-pails as the boys called it that is with a lady on each arm advanced up the colonnade gazing mournfully at the rain that came straight down as iron wires three or four times did the attentive beau shout out hi to the passing cabs. phil had seen this group in the distance and was galloping towards them his naked feet slapping the pavement like fish on a marble slab if we have to stay here all night william i'm not going through that said one of the ladies pointing to the shower-bath without i should spoil everything i've got on added the other damsel who wore a light blue tissue dress that in two seconds would have pulped like silver paper. The gentleman, who was strong and manly, muttered something about coming out with women who were afraid of a drop of water, when Phil, bounding up to them, exclaimed as he pulled at his hair like a check string, Shall I fetch a cab, Your Honor? He only heard one of the ladies direct him to go directly like a good boy, and off he flew among the vehicles shouting out as he passed who wants an out-and-out job he ducked under horses necks he sidled between wheels that went within an inch of his naked feet but every conveyance he ran up to seemed engaged he saw mike go by seated like a nobleman on a box and in vain he offered him a penny for his find some of the cabmen although taken asked him where to and seemed inclined to play their retaining fares false. But Phil's answer of ever such a way was evidently not distinct inducement enough to warrant their being dishonorable. At length, as the rain fell heavier and heavier, the boy thought the best method was to mount beside the first driver he passed. So up he clambered, saying, "'Why, wherever you've been to, I was a-looking for you ever such a while's all over.' oh were you as was the boy walt engaged me asked the man why in course it was answered phil with assumed indignation and a frustrate fear it is too with a glass of spirits at the end of it he had been absent some twenty minutes hunting for the vehicle but his people had not moved from where he had left them which proved to phil that cabs were very scarce indeed that night and made him think a shilling would not be too much for his trouble nothing could exceed the gallantry displayed by the young sweeper as he offered his hand dirty as a cheese rind to assist the ladies into the vehicle or twisted his body round so that his tattered skirt might cover the dirty wheel and when at last the door was closed and the time had come to receive his payment if any he stood wet through as a dog at the serpentine grinning like a hurdy-gurdy boy saying in supplicating accents remember a poor boy miss very wet sir it's the last cab left on the rank mum took me half an hour sir mind you pay the poor boy well william said one of the ladies whilst the other added he must have caught his death poor child Here's more than you ever had in your life before, cried the gentleman, slipping as the vehicle drove off what Phil thought was a sixpence into his hand. Master Merton had got into the habit of mistrusting his fellow man, so, disregarding the elegant appearance of the gentleman, he bit at the coin to see if it were a good one. He had his doubts about its genuineness, for it felt very heavy, and nervously he advanced to a lamp to examine it it was half a sovereign. Directly he beheld it, he clenched it up in his hand as suddenly as if he had been catching a fly, for fear anybody stronger than himself had been watching him. Then he sneaked off, still looking around him in mistrust, until he came to a deserted court, and there, raining as it was, he sat down on a step to feast his eyes on his treasure. He turned it over and over as a monkey does a bit of biscuit. He read by the gas lamp the inscription on both sides of the coin, and he weighed it on the tips of his fingers and made it ring upon the muddy stones, wiping it carefully on his coat when he was tired of the music. How often he had seen these golden coins behind the bars of public houses and wondered if he should ever have one of his own he had seen little wooden bowls full of them at the money-changers and he had stood there by the half-hour thinking over the number of things he could buy with only one of the little bright discs then he grew grateful to the donors and suddenly remembered how beautiful the two ladies were with nothing on their heads but flowers and only pink capes on their bare shoulders and his heart also inclined very much towards the gentleman and he regretted that he had not heard where the cabman had been told to drive to, that he might have done his benefactor some service in return for his generosity if it were only to sweep a crossing before his door, or caten wheel in front of the parlor window for the ladies to see him. As it was, Phil thrust the half-sovereign into his cheek, that being the safest purse he knew of, and, determining to say nothing about his wealth, to his brothers in mud he scampered off to find them on a fine night what is called the fun of the haymarket seldom begins before one o'clock for by that time gentlemen of lively dispositions have imbibed enough strong drink to render them reckless of consequences most of the visitors too have just finished supper at that hour and feel good-humoured under the effects of the meal the men and women who have come there to sell fruit and flowers have doubled their prices and are plying their trade with the greatest industry displaying their bouquets whenever they see a gentleman talking to any one in the hope that he may be made to buy the extravagant nosegay or thrusting baskets of expensive but tempting plums into the centre of conversing groups and placing the male portion of them in the uncomfortable position of having to appear mean if they refuse to purchase however earnestly they may wish to escape the outlay it is about this time too that rows begin to take place should the police attempt the capture of any illegal practical joker rescues are attempted by his friends and a crowd soon collected which sways about the roadway the shiny top of the officer's hat always forming the center of the riot under the influence of drink gentlemen who do not take their liquor kindly as the duck expresses it grow pugnacious and like the retainers of the montagues and capulets will fall to and fight on the slightest pretext whether it be the bite of a thumb at them or the using of disrespectful expressions or a too vigorous push with the shoulder the young crossing-sweepers enjoyed this time immensely for though to quote the words of his majesty king teddy flight drunken gentleman's is always either jolly or spiteful yet they do not mind running the risk of kicks when the chances are equally balanced by halfpence. should any gentleman who has been too thirsty at his supper evince any inclination to joke with our muddy community the boys far from checking these attempts at familiarity rather used their utmost endeavours to encourage the acquaintance on one occasion the school having discovered a couple of gentlemen limp with liquor and bending backwards and forwards with the elasticity of foils made from the best steel instantly surrounded them and commenced tumbling as these unsteady revellers were in that condition when lamp-posts and houses revolve and spin around their giddiness found no relief from having half a dozen pairs of legs twisting like wheel-spokes before their eyes. "'Go along, will you?' Hiccoughed one of the inebriated couple, dealing out a slash with his cane which fell upon the thigh of Mr. Mike and drew forth a long howl like tuning an organ-pipe. The sufferer retired to the nearest lamp post there to rub his wound, and make a variety of faces expressive of nipping agony but the other lads still continued their exercise though they cautiously increased the distance between their legs and the stinging cane give us a shilling and we'll go was the offer made by the duck as he saw the couple blink their heavy eyelids and flinch under the torture of the caten wheel go and be hung was the gruff answer but the gentleman had scarcely finished speaking before he burst out laughing violently as if some comic idea had suddenly tickled his fancy and when his merriment had subsided sufficiently to allow him to talk he for some drunken freak offered to purchase the brooms of all the boys at the rate of one shilling each a bargain which the urchins concluded as quickly as possible lest the bidder might change his silly mind then with the muddy stumps under their arms these two big men staggered up and down the haymarket laughing immoderately at the immense fun they imagined themselves to be enjoying speaking as clearly as their thick speech would let them they began by imitating as closely as their drunkenness would permit the manners and customs of dutch girls asking everybody that passed to buy a broom my dear and occasionally thrusting the dirty article they jocosely offered for sale into the face of those that refused to purchase all these proceedings were highly amusing to the gang of young sweepers who followed the two gentlemen cheering vociferously everything they did and dancing closely round and about them in the hopes that they might in time be sufficiently enraged to restore the brooms to their former owners by throwing them at their heads when the two tipsy gentlemen were tired of imitating the dutch girls they thought it would be amusing if they pretended to be crossing-sweepers and to work they went brushing away at the pavement before the couples who were walking about and taking off their hats to beg quite in a professional style meeting with but little success or applause at this pleasant pastime they changed it to that of flourishing the broom in the air and dancing about like wild indians occasionally playfully varying the entertainment by knocking off the hats of lookers-on a feat which ended in getting the unfortunate drunkards into trouble by being in their turn knocked about by a broad-shouldered thick-necked man who if he was not a member of the ring certainly had the most wonderful-looking nose out of the fancy and who toppled over the two idiots in a style worthy of the most accomplished pugilist when the genuine crossing sweepers saw the amateurs sprawling in the road they quietly picked up the brooms and walked away declaring that them too was the queerest characters out and wishing with little guard for the morality of mankind that they could only meet with such a couple every night of their lives it was about this time that the duck finding that some novelty was sadly wanted to give a spurt to street begging, introduced into the haymarket his celebrated feat of standing on his nose. It has been much doubted whether Captain Drake was really the first to think of this eccentric gymnastic exercise. One Judy Jack, who was intimate with the duck, being in the same profession, though he carried on business in Camden Town, has since brought forward evidence of a rather strong nature to prove that it was he who had taught the duck the knack of performing the trick, and had even showed him how he must bear on his hands to take the weight off the nose, or he dented in as easy as a trod thimble. The captain's method of proceeding was to accost wild-looking young men, and after asking for a copper for poor little Jack, to add, I'll stand on my nose for a penny, Your Honor, and if the tempting offer were accepted up went the duck's nimble legs and there he rested with his face flat to the ground at the same time drawing the attention of his patrons in a voice resembling that of a person afflicted with a severe head-cold to the fact that his doze was slapping in de after each night's labours the gang were accustomed to adjourn to the jury-house as they turned the steps around the portico of st martin's church there to reckon up what they had made during the day it was usually about three o'clock in the morning when this business meeting took place but the young rogues far from feeling sleepy were generally as fresh as bees and in the best of spirits, especially if the takings had been equal to their expectations lolling against the massive iron railings the counting up of halfpence would proceed in clerk-like silence Fourteen pence, Mike would cry out when his reckoning was over. None so dusty, neither. Eleven pence, Harpenny, would call out in his turn the king. That's better than smashing your leg. One and seven, Phil would say, and, imitating his companion's style of expression, he would add, and nobody's eye put out. On hearing this amount, the duck, who for some unknown reason always pretended to be the least fortunate of the party, would beseech phil to give him twopence for luck if phil saw no just reason for granting this request mr drake would decrease the amount asked to one halfpenny and if that gift were also refused he would beg pathetically that his wealthy young friend would when he took his morning's penorth of coffee at the street-stall spare him a little of it in the saucer there was no pride about the duck and he always took things as they came and indeed not unfrequently when they didn't during the fag end of the season when the gay idlers of london had gone to the seaside to pick up the health they had thrown away in the haymarket the troop did not make such excellent incomes as they could have wished indeed their expenditure not unfrequently exceeded their gains by exactly the threepence which mrs o'donovan required for the night's lodging and much to that lady's disgust she would be forced to give her young gentleman credit the establishment of mrs o'donovan being avowedly conducted on the ready-money principle and the wardrobes of the youths consisting only of the few rags they by great ingenuity managed with the aid of pins and strings to carry on their backs the landlady grew nervous when the amount due to her amounted to a sixpence a head at such a time this severely punctual woman knowing the habits of the boys would rise from her pillow and in the blue light of dawn suddenly appear before the assembled yonkers as they sat at their accounts on the jury-house steps the duck who was always the heaviest defaulter would instantly endeavour to escape from the cold determined gaze of his creditor's grey eye but her voice would pull him back like a hand Mr Drake, she would say, shaking her head, as if prepared to quarrel. Mr Drake, oy want me money. I'm a hard working woman, Mr Drake. Why, I never seed you working yet, would equivocate the duck. You owe me saxpence, Mr Drake, she would continue, without heeding the reply, and I'll thank you kindly for that same she waited in silence for a few seconds gazing with dreadful sternness at the other debtors but on the duck beginning to whistle she lost her temper and broke out wildly you idle vagabone! and it is for the likes of such that ye that an honest woman is to be turned out of house and home whilst ye are larrikin about the straits livin on the best and squanderin' me money mr drake oh, i want me rent why don't you distrain asked the duck is it distrain ye?" say roared the lady your bundle of filth ye it's at the rag shop oh, I must carry their thin their villain it's only brown paper they'd make it your the best of times pay me sixpence, mr drake why it's months since i've seen a sixpence said the duck in persecuted accents i wish i had and i'd have eaten something instead of never tasting nothing all the blessed day that's a lie mr drake screamed the landlady you've had onions for i can smell em here and enough to knock me down i want me sixpence i've worked hard for mr drake why don't you ask the other chap instead of only bullying me complained the debtor the fiery mrs o'donovan was trembling with rage shaking like the hand of a drinker she was about to follow the duck's advice and had commenced her attack upon the gang by howling out ye heard of plundering locusts when the whole of the troop took to their legs and darted away from her leaving her to shake her fists and scream after their retreating forms as they knew it would be useless to return home in the absurd hopes of being allowed to sleep there the entire party made the best of their way to st James's park and having climbed the railings they silently sought out some convenient spot that would serve them for a bedstead at length they discovered what Teddy Flight termed a place that had been made a purpose, knowing they were coming. The overhanging boughs of some valuable shrubs, the names of which were carefully painted on the labels near their roots, formed a kind of gypsy's tent, and the withered leaves that had fallen covered the ground with a soft, dry mattress, almost equal, they declared, to a truss of straw into this branch-curtained retreat the lads crept on all fours one after another to enjoy their doss as in their slang they called sleep of all beds these here flower beds is the primest for a doss said mike it's as soft as feathers if we pulls our coats over our ears and then scrunches together in a lump we shall do prime was the advice of the experienced duck the last in bed blows out the glim jocosely remarked master jim then huddling together like a litter of kittens the boys fell asleep some with their head resting on the stumps of trees as a pillow others with their legs and arms sprawling about so that the limbs were crossing together like wickerwork. such was the kind of life these miserable lads were accustomed to lead an existence that had no pleasure in it beyond its daring and its lawlessness where liberty was purchased at the expense of rags and hunger and which was gradually training them for the jail by teaching the boys that the least laborious method of earning their bread was by transgressing the laws of society instead of conforming to them already they were ranked among the outcasts of the world those for whose safe keeping policemen had been appointed and prisons built. Phil, from living among these boys, had picked up their slang and forgotten the good words taught him at his school as completely as a child sent to a foreign land loses its native language. His mind, too, had taken their stamp, the one that often seals a destiny, and his morality had become as muddy as his rags when well-to-do people passed near him in the streets they often placed their hands in their pockets mistaking him for a thief for there was a cunning side-look in his eyes and when he sneaked after them to beg his step was more like that of one ready to decamp than bent on following he had been one year at this sad work he had passed through the winter treading the snow with frost-bitten feet and cuddling together the rags that fluttered about him like a storm rent sail the only time he had known warmth was when he was scraping the snow from before the houses and the only variety to his miserable life was when the boys pelted each other with snowballs for the halfpence that were thrown to them or swept open spaces on the ice for skaters at the serpentine but when the warm spring returned when the chill blamed feet had healed and the rags wholly as a worm-eaten loaf once more felt warm enough then phil forgot the wise resolutions he had made in his time of suffering and returned as a matter of course to his old habits but for a mere accident he might to his dying day have remained a member of the associated crossing sweepers Late one night, when all the gang were prowling about the haymarket like cats in a flower bed, they saw two gentlemen lolling against the post at the corner of Windmill Street, and evidently wishing they could hit upon some amusement to relieve them from the hard work of having nothing to do. By their long mustaches and their hair close-cut behind, the quick-eyed and experienced young beggars instantly recognized them as belonging to Her Majesty's service though whether foot or cavalry they neither knew nor cared as pigeons to peas the boys flew to the perfumed sons of mars the duck instantly volunteered to stand on his nose and beat time with the soles of his feet to the tune of is the battle over mother for the trumpery equivalent of one penny the king edward flight ever willing to meet the times and distance competitors offered to turn head over heels as rapidly as a pith-ball rotates on a fountain for the totally insufficient remuneration of one-halfpenny phil whose business principles were small profits and quick returns endeavoured to undersell his rivals by proposing to Kate and wheel until he was black in the face for the small charge of one farthing well then the whole lot of you go to work said one of the officers and a second afterwards the solo with the foot accompaniment had commenced and the other lads were twisting about as rapidly as the paddles of a steamer but just as the entertainment was half over it was unfortunately interrupted by the approach of a policeman who taking off his belt dealt the performers such lusty blows with the buckle that they were glad to spring to their feet and scamper away as the dogs driven from a tripe shop returned to gaze again at the wet wash-leather looking dainty so did these beggar boys once more appear before the officers as soon as they had given the policeman what they called the lucky dodge the officers laughed to see the young scamps as they came up grinning and whining to ask for the little bit of silver and they were kind enough to make several inquiries as to whether the castigation they had received had hurt them or not but as to the payment of the money the boys thought they had earned the gentlemen complained that the performances they had bartered for had not been given and vowed that they would not cash up until they had witnessed something more for their money then they set the boys a variety of comic tasks one of the gentlemen had a box of dinner pills in his pocket and four of them were placed in mike's hand and he was ordered to swallow them instantly the boy shuddered with the disgust all lads feel for medicine and he made a face which drew up all his features into a variety of wrinkles but as there was scarcely any enormity he would not have committed for one penny he hastened to the pails by the cab-stand and ducking his head like a horse filled his mouth with water and swallowed the pills as pleasantly as if they had been four black currants the next boy ordered to stand forth was king teddy and he was led by the eccentric gentleman on town into a pastry shop and there being mounted on one of the marble-topped tables he was ordered like a monkey on a drumhead to begin his exercises the young lady in the shop behind the pewter hot-water apparatus where the veal and ham pies are kept tepid screamed out as the cobwebby flight entered turn that dirty boy out i won't have him here but those who promised him sixpence ordered him to advance, and, although he plainly heard the fearful words, Run for the police! the naughty child commenced his gymnastics. When Master Teddy, growing nervous, asked whether, Please, sir, he might go now, instead of the yes he hoped for, he was commanded to and wheel the whole length of the shop, despite the crowd of customers, and in he plunged, as into water, making the tart eaters fly before him his legs revolved within an inch of trays of cracknels and nearly brought down dishes of custards or sent yellow jellies quivering over the oilcloth and all the time parasols and canes beat at him as he trundled along even now these officers would not give the little sixpence that was once more employed for a task of a decidedly cruel nature was given to the whole band but nevertheless it was one from which these inhuman ragamuffins did not shrink go and pull that tipsy man over was the order and like dogs at a weak cat the pack flew at the staggering drunkard and upset him as easily as a ninepin their work completed they once more asked for their money but no the gentlemen were enjoying themselves too much with the sport to put so speedy an end to the fun these officers and gentlemen thinking over what mischief they could next invent happened to catch sight of a woman going by and captain drake as the biggest boy of the troop was directed to go and sweep mud over her with a vigorous dig of his broom the duck sent a broad sheet of liquid dirt against the poor soul's dress covering it as with a patch of brown paper she turned round in wonder to see what had struck her, pulling her cotton skirt about her with a look of disgust and astonishment that made the troop and their fashionable abettors shout with laughter. Why does Phil not roar and dance with the enjoyment of the mischief like his companions? His face has turned as white as if a sickness had suddenly smitten him. As he saw the woman's features, his hair was lifted from his head as when a gust of wind blows against the temples he thanked heaven that she did not see him among her insulters that poor nurse that used to call him her own pretty boy the kind patient creature that even when he richly deserved it would not hurt her fill but would rather kiss the pouting lips of the sulking boy and coax him to laugh away his ill humours time was when phil was innocent and he had impulses which gave him no time for thought but would have sent him bounding forward at the joy of seeing that face again but now he is one of the foxes of the street and as he would not be seen in bad company he sneaks round the corner and runs along back courts to reappear again higher up in the same street and there he stops till his nurse hazlewood shall advance towards him whilst he is impatiently waiting her approach he runs into the road to watch what she is doing and when he catches glimpses of her through the openings in the moving crowd he perceives her pointing to her dress and appealing indignantly to the lookers-on the muscles of his face twitch again and his fingers work like a beetle's claws as he thinks to himself if she only knew i was one of them that did it presently she advances and panting and trembling with anxiety he creeps after her twice he calls out mother but in so low a voice that he is not heard and he is glad of it too for he dreads the look he knows she must give him when she sees her fill, a ragged street boy. More than once the thought of runaway has entered his mind, but the wish to hear of Bertie is stronger than the fear of any scoldings he might receive. At last the nervous boy pulls at her shawl, and, as his nurse looks round, his head falls on his bosom, and he says, "'It's, it's me, mother,' she knows the voice in a moment and taking that head with the dust-coloured hair between her hands she raises it to the full glare of the gas and mutters as if to herself good god it's phil the poor soul is silent with grief but the boy thinks the scolding is coming and he stammers out it's no good rowing a chap it can't be altered now are those the only clothes you've got, she asked. As Phil played with his fingers, he answered, Yes, and the best's uncommon bad, ain't it? And then he peeped up to see if she was laughing. But her countenance was full of grief. And what are you doing to earn a living, she inquired. Oh, knocking and rowing about, mother doing a job at anything. Oh, dear, oh, dear, she sighed that my own Phil should come to this, and she took up his hand, but dropped it again when she saw how black and dirty it was. Oh, that I should live to see my boy in this state. Dear, dear, I almost wish I hadn't met you, for I used to think of you as you once were, with your pretty pink face and your child's talk, and now, when you come into my mind, I must always see you dirty and in tatters, and with the words and ways of bad people in the streets oh i wish i hadn't lived to see you Phil. Well, where's the use of crying mother that won't do no good the boy stammered out it is hard after bringing you up and nursing you as if you were one of my own to see you turn bad like this with only rags to your back and perhaps dying of hunger well if a chap is i don't see that telling him on it is much help god help you she faltered wiping her eyes on her shawl one or two errand boys had stopped to look at phil and his nurse and others as they passed by turned round to stare at the weeping woman and the abashed boy by her side who was trying to take the edge off his despondency by picking to pieces the twigs on his broom observing that they were noticed the pair strolled towards leicester square for some time they walked by the railings around the enclosure neither of them saying a word the woman sighing and weeping poor soul and the boy with his heart like a lump of lead in his bosom although he tried to look as if he did not care and kicked at the stones that were in his way or tossed halfpence with apparently the greatest indifference Sometimes he would look up at her slyly to see if she was still crying, and then, finding that her grief was not allayed, he grew impatient and jerked his head on one side as much as to say, I can't stand this much longer. At last he summoned courage to speak. Mother, where's Bertie? he asked, but in a meek tone, half expecting the information would be refused. Turning round suddenly so that her tearful face was looking full at him, she cried out in fear. You shan't go there. Why not? What have I done to her, I should like to know, he grumbled out. No, Phil, the woman said excitedly. You shan't go tempting her into your ways and courses. If you've gone wrong, at least I'll keep her honest and good. You shan't go near her, I'll tell you. "'You are a-laying it on,' he answered impertinently. "'One would think I was everything bad to hear you talk.' "'God only knows what you are, Phil,' the poor thing moaned out. "'But I know what Bertie is, and how good and pure is the heart within her. "'No, you shan't go there from any telling of mine, so don't ask me.' "'Now look here, mother,' began the boy, after swallowing two or three times, "'as if his throat were dry.' you seem to think i ain't all right but i am all right none writer what have i done i should like to know of course i begs but that ain't stealing a feller must live i knew you couldn't steal phil was her mild reply and it cut him the more because he knew himself better than she did well then what do you mean don't you think i love bertie now look here if a chap was to try and do her any harm i'd go in at him if he was as big as a house i tell you that you and her is the only two i like in the world except jim a little bit i've been waiting to see you this year gone for something told me we should meet many a time i've run afore people to see if it was you and this is the way you serves a feller when you do run up agin him he was crying and rubbing the knuckles into his eyes, so that he could not see the kind look with which she turned towards him. He felt her hand rest upon his shoulder, but he shook it off like an angry child. Now, I'll just tell you, Mother, and it's gospel truth too. The boy continued sobbing when I've been on the crossing or catenwheeling wheeling after buses. I've often wished tremendous I might catch sight of Bertie i do like her really so you might as well tell me where she lives as no answer was given he began to taunt his old nurse ah, it's because i got rags on you won't notice a chap now no no my philip she cried out quickly it isn't the rags and mud on your back that grieve me i was shocked to be sure to see the boy i loved and reared as one of my own looking like a street beggar but it's the mud in you that hurts me so deeply. You talk mud and think mud, Phil, and you mustn't see Bertie. This made the lad angry, and he commenced threatening her. Mind what you're about, Mother, or you'll make me regular wild. If you don't tell me where Bertie lives, may my arm never come straight if I don't get locked up tonight and have three months of it. He stretched out his little arm to the clouds and as she in horror seized his hand he continued now mark my words and i ain't joking if i have gone wrong you and bertie is the only ones as could put me straight again i mind what you might say but you won't help a feller if bertie were to say you shan't kate and wheel again i'd give it over as quick as that and he snapped his fingers there that'll show you how fond i am of her now do tell me where she is, or if you doubt a feller, take me yourself to see her, and I'll do any mortal thing you choose as a quits. Like all boys, Phil, now that he had given vent to his anger, became very depressed, and his former excitement changed into a passionate flood of tears. All the time he was crying, he continued to talk, entreating with the greatest earnestness to be told the girl's address and throwing his arms about him or hitting the iron railings with his broom as if he were venting his spleen upon the metal if he could only have performed one tithe of the noble actions he in his rude manner of speech promised his foster-mother should dignify his future career in life in case she acceded to his entreaties poor phil would in himself have furnished virtuous illustrations sufficient for another volume of the percy anecdotes at length the old nurse seeing what influence his foster-sister possessed over him and knowing that whatever counsel the gentle-minded girl gave would be as pure and good as innocence and affection could prompt acceded to his request but she affixed these conditions you must be there said she beginning with stipulation number one long before seven o'clock in the morning for it would be as much as Bertie's place is worth if the lady of the house, who has a deal of plate, was to hear of you coming in after her in those rags, Phil. All right, answered Phil, without feeling the least insulted at the remark in his toilette. I'll go and sleep all night on the doorstep, with my head on the scraper, to wake me early and you must ring the area bell mind was clause number two yes and i am a first-rate hand at ringing bells i'll make it sing out like church time no no you mustn't make a noise you silly fellow or else you'll get Bertie turned away oh no i forgot what a flat i am i'll scarce touch it loud enough to wake a weasel and you'll promise was the third condition to do as she tells you of course i will upon my sacred civvy why if bertie was to tell me to chuck a stone at the lord mayor of london himself, i'd have a shy at him if i had to get into his gold coat to take aim end of section fifteen